This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, it's time for another episode of New Books in Science Fiction and Fantasy. I'm Rob Wolf, and I have the honor of being your host, although the real honor is that I get to talk with authors about the things they love to do most, which is write. Probably one of the things they like to do least is talk about their books, since writers tend to be notoriously shy, but maybe that's not the case in Sweden. So why do I mention Sweden? Well, because a couple months ago, a man named Peter Oberg sent me a copy of a collection of short stories by Swedish authors in English that he edited. And since I'm always interested in how science fiction and fantasy is imagined through the lens of other cultures, I invited two of the authors in the collection on today's show. With me, uh, through the miracle of voice over IP, are two contributors to the collection waiting for the machines to fall asleep. They are writers Anna Jakobsen Lund and Oscar Schellner. Welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you very much. And you actually managed to pronounce my name correctly. I'm, I'm impressed. Uh, well, thank you. Thank you very much. And uh, I have to say, I'm very appreciative that we're doing the interview in English. I'm always self-conscious as as an English speaker that quite often, you know, people learn my language, but I have not learned theirs. So so thank you for, for both writing in English, your short stories, and for um, uh, speaking with me in English. No, thank you for having us. It's it's really great to be given this opportunity to to speak a bit about uh, the book. I think it's I don't fall into the category of people being uh, uninterested or or shy of speaking about their book. I think it's it's lovely to be able to speak about my writing. It's like uh, try stop me. Oh, great! <laughs> e- excellent. Then, well, then we'll have a very rich discussion. That's a great way to begin. So, why don't you both tell me a little bit about yourselves and your writing careers, and then we can talk about the story collection. So, Anna, do you do you want to start? Yeah, I can start. Uh, well, I'm, I'm I work as a political scientist, and I, I I help people organize their companies and 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 work with their policies and a lot of bureaucratical boring things and as my day job and then I've been writing since I was little actually and mostly realistic pieces when I uh, published my first novel a couple of years ago it was a really realistic uh, quite traditional Swedish story uh, kind of dark and bleak and and people sitting in rooms not talking Uh, and then (laughs) yeah that, that says a lot about Swedish culture, I guess. Huh? Yeah, I think it's it, it's yeah, it's a really Swedish book, and I'm I'm also from the country. Uh, in Sweden, we don't call the call it the countryside. I'm actually from a small town, but but I live in in this vast nothingness of people living really sparsely apart. 
So I think that is in my soul as well, this this kind of dark and I think isolated ideas about uh, people and life and everything. And I think that is um, that was interesting to write and I was thinking that I would continue writing realistically for the rest of my life. But then I kind of stumbled into writing science fiction. I always read it and I always read fantasy and I like it and I like the stories, but I didn't think I had it in me to, to create the worlds and, and do the storytelling. I always thought I was more of a, more of a people sitting in small rooms, not talking to each other kind of writer. Uh, so I was kind of actually surprised with myself when I found that I was writing science fiction and that I really liked it and that I, more, more and more stories, short stories came out of me that were all set in different alternative universes. And, and I think that I'm not turning back to the re- realistic stories. I'm done with the people not talking and now I actually have some scenes of people not talking to each other in my 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 science fiction books as well. But but still, it's in a more interesting environment than my hometown. So so I think I'm I'm sticking with uh, the fantastic stories for now. And Oscar, what about you? Uh, you? You've been writing since the beginning, I think, haven't you? Writing science fiction and horror, although I think you got a relatively late start as a writer. I read that somewhere on in, in an interview you gave. Well, actually, I have written fantasy, horror, and science fiction. Uh, And as you say, I am not the kind of person who has always been writing. A lot of my uh, author friends are. They uh, always uh, tell stories about how they wrote their first book, well, so-called book, when they were like eight years old and so on. But I did not. Um, It was somewhere when I was around 27, 28... Well, because even though I really didn't write so much when I grew up, uh, I have always made up stories in my mind, uh, always played with my own universes. Um, and I I got my education, if you, if you will, from uh, the classics. Uh, when I was around nine, I discovered uh, Jules Verne, and I read pretty much everything. Uh, by this old Frenchman and I was so fascinated by his stories how he could write about submarines uh, 50 to 60 years before they actually existed who he could write about traveling to to the moon <laughs> like a hundred years before it happened and so on uh, then I read uh, quite a lot of uh, Isaac Asimov actually it was my mother who is also a science fiction fan He she put the steel caves by Isaac Asimov into my hands when I was around 11, and then I read everything, just everything I could find, uh, by Isaac Asimov, Robert A. Heinlein, and Arthur C. Clarke, those three great uh, Golden Age authors. And then it just continued. Um, So I differ, I guess, from Anna in that respect that I have always found so-called realistic literature a bit boring. <laughs> uh, the fantastic, uh, especially when it comes to science fiction, uh, has always uh, been, been the kind of literature to grab me and hold my attention. But I do love uh, fantasy and uh, horror as well. Uh, actually, my two first books were uh, fantasy. Uh, I had, as I said, I started started to write when I was around 27, and I'm 36 now, so it's been uh, nine year 
road trip <laughs> this far into this undiscovered country. And do you have a day job as well? Well, yeah, I am a software engineer otherwise. So uh, I usually write on the train uh, back and forth from, uh, from work. I get uh, 45 minutes of writing done there and 45 minutes back. So uh, after a while, uh, if you're disciplined, it starts to pile up. Yeah, very efficient use of your time. Well, it's it's actually the only time I have, so I have to be efficient. But it it actually works. It's something about trains and the sound they make. And you you sit down, open your laptop, and suddenly uh, I'm in the zone. So it's, it's it works perfectly. I I do write sometimes during nights and so on when the kids and the families asleep, but. I never really get into the zone as quick as I do on the train. So, yeah, it's, it's something about trains, you know. And the, the authors you mentioned as inspiration, I mean, you mentioned Jules Verne, who is French, and then you mentioned three American authors. Yeah. And, you know, I'm not familiar with Swedish literature. I mean, I've read, you know, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, and I'm sure I've read some other things along the way, Pippi Longstocking or and such. Yeah. Yeah. But is there a tradition of science fiction in Sweden as such? There is a tradition, but it's quite small, unfortunately. Uh, there is a much larger tra- tradition when it comes to uh, uh, fairy tales and fantasy. Uh, for example, you mentioned Pippi Longstocking and Astrid Lindgren, who wrote those stories, also wrote uh, the, the Brothers Lionheart, Mio and Mio, and... Uh, uh, they're called in English. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ronja, the uh, robber's daughter, I think it's uh, called in English. Uh, and those are definitely uh, fantasy. Even though most Swedish people who read them as kids or got them read to them as kids, I don't really know if they understand that it's fantasy. I think they just think about it as fairy tales. But we have a strong tradition when it comes to that. So that is also why my first two books were fantasy, and I mixed in quite a lot of the uh, old Swedish fairy tales, old uh, Scandinavian uh, mythology, the uh, Norse gods, uh, and stuff like that, trolls, elves, etc. Because uh, in that way I, w- I was able to write a fantasy using my own culture's uh, heritage and uh, not live in the shadow of uh, Tolkien or other Anglo-Saxon, uh, more, more Anglo-Saxon uh, literature. Not that, that there is anything wrong with it. I, I love Tolkien. Tolkien was also one of those authors that made his mark on me when I was around 12. Uh, but still, it's uh, interesting and fascinating to be able to create something new from your own cultural heritage. That's a good lead-in, I think, to the short story collection that you both contributed to. Um, maybe you could talk a little bit about how the collection came about. It's called Waiting for the Machines to Fall Asleep, and it's billed as a, as a collection of new Swedish voices in science fiction, although it was written in English. So maybe Anna or, I mean, Oscar, either one of you want to tell how you got involved in the project? I think that the, the collection is actually quite telling of how the the science fiction scene is in Sweden today. Because, as Oscar said, there's no big science fiction scene. Uh, And I think that the fantasy scene, we all, uh, as readers, tend to think of fantasy as uh, tales for kids. We all read the fantasy stories when we were kids, and we also have, I think, a lot of readers 
read the, the big Anglo-Saxons like Tolkien when they're kids, uh, quite early on. Uh, we have uh, people are highly edu- educated and a lot of our parents read the stories and then passed them, them on to us. But I think that uh, the big publishing houses tend to think that this is something that stops with uh, young adults. This is nothing nothing for, for adults and it's not, it's not, there's not any status uh, for a writer to be writing science fiction or, or fantasy. They, there's a trend, but I think we, we tend to look at it as, as a trend that will pass. The big publishing houses see that this is the Harry Potter, the, the Hunger Games. They're, it's for kids and it's a trend and it, there's not even a, a genre uh, of it. In, in yeah, they don't actually get it, unfortunately. I, I do believe, however, that Game of Thrones is starting to change that. The TV series has been a huge success here in Sweden, just as all around the world, it seems. So possibly they are starting to catch up, but well, I don't know. Yeah, and I think that, that this, there's a lot of uh, independent uh, editors yeah. and, and yeah. publishers that... that are of another kind that love fantasy and science fiction and and do this out of some passion that that's not for them it's not a trend it's the only thing they they read it's the only thing they live for and and the publisher that's done this this collection is one of those he just collects stories and and new publishes new uh, short stories by unknown authors all the time and i think that is that says something about the the scene in sweden today it, it, it has happened a lot on the Swedish scene during the, just the last five to six years. With the advent of uh, cheap printing and e-books, etc., uh, there, suddenly there has been hundreds, no, not hundreds, but there has been a lot of new <laughs> small print publishers uh, with passion, as Anna says, who, who wants to get genre literature out there in new ways that the uh, big old houses uh, don't either don't think about doing or don't dare doing. I, I, well, it can be a mix of both. Uh, but so suddenly, just the, uh, the last three, four, five years, it has been almost like a an, an explosion of new fantasy, fantasy, science fiction, and horror. And I do believe that this anthology, uh, Waiting for the Machines to Fall Asleep, is uh, in, in a way a kind of proof of that. It's, it's, it's kind of a distillation, you could say, of uh, a lot of these new talents who has been uh, chewing up on the scene. Well, th- th- there are some uh, old, <laughs> old, older talents in here as well. So- some of the old guard is here as well. But quite a lot of the authors in the anthology are... Uh, the new ones who has come now with the new small print publishers. And why was the decision made to publish in English? Did you ever talk to Peter about that? Because you've been on the scene longer than me, Oscar, <laughs> and you've known, you know Peter. I, I've just, yeah. I, I, just I, I, I spoke to Peter email, so. uh, about it. And, uh, well, Peter, uh, he's one of those passionate people who is... Uh, who is behind one of those new uh, small print presses. And, well, in, in just a couple of years, he has managed to uh, build up his affront publishing uh, from just a small publishing house to something which has actually managed to make an impact on the scene, a, a real impact. He has published quite a number now of anthologies in, in Swedish. And uh, people have started to take notice uh, that there's even been... Uh, 
re- re- reviews in uh, Dagens Nyheter, which is the uh, biggest daily ni- newspaper here in Sweden. So something is definitely happening. And uh, when I spoke to him, uh, I, I, I believe that he thinks that it's time uh, for the Swedish scene and the Swedish authors to reach a bigger audience. If you look at it uh, in, in pure numbers, uh, what is it? We have like 10 million speaking Swedish in, in the world. I, I think it's something like, like, yeah. Yeah, something like 10 million. Uh, and how many English speaking or English reading people are, are there out there? I don't know. A billion? Two? Three? Yeah, I don't like know. <laughs> All of Sweden and, fin- and Swedish speaking Finland is like London. So I think it's... And we're a small language, and and it's it's a, it's a big world out there. And I think that Peter's doing the right thing, trying to to get the stories. But these stories are not in translation. Where they, did, I assume, or maybe I'm I'm actually not clear. Did you write them originally in English, or did you both write in Swedish and then translate them yourself? I think mm, there's no translated stories, uh, professionally translated. Every everything is written in English, and I think that most of the stories are written in English for this. I actually wrote mine in Swedish first. I, fir- I, I tried a bit in English, but I realized that uh, my width of vocabulary uh, wasn't really that good enough. And then I translated it. And then I let a friend of mine who is an in- indigenous English speaker uh, proofread it. Uh, because there is, uh, you, you see, in Sweden, we hear English all the time on television. We, we read it all the time on the internet. But it's not that often that, that we actually get a chance to sit down and speak like we're doing right now. Uh, it's been quite time, quite some time since I did it uh, last time, <laughs> and uh, it's not very often we actually write in. Well, at, at least not very often. I write in, in English, so I, I I had to do the extra extra step and uh, actually translate it. And why don't we talk a little bit about the stories and and the subject of these stories in general? I mean, they cover a broad range. I mean, there's kind of a space opera. There's fantasy elements, goblins. I think there are twenty four stories in the collection. Um, Oscar, your story features a a woman who's traveled through space and has been a adventurer in space, and I guess due to the laws of relativity, you know, has returned to Earth relatively young compared to the husband she left behind, and they meet, and uh, there's a there's a it's a love story as well. And Anna, yours is a little more set, set in a dystopic setting and literally messianic in a way because the protagonist holds out the hope for you know society's renewal. So I don't know if you both want to maybe talk a little bit about your stories, why you chose those themes, and if there's anything uniquely Swedish about them or if they're really universal. You start, Oscar, because when I start, we can't stop me. So, so. <laughs> you go first. Actually, I, I wrote this uh, for a German anthology, uh, which seems to never get out. <laughs> so when Peter asked me if I had an- anything in English, I sent this to him, and he liked it enough to bring it on into his anthology. Uh, and uh, when I thought about Germans, what do Germans like about Sweden? Hmm, they like our classic red cottages with uh, white trimming. Hmm. Let's put the story <laughs> in a uh, 
uh, red cottage somewhere out in the country. And, uh, well, that sounds kind of lame, <laughs> but that's actually, that, that actually how, how it started. Uh, but then I wanted, um, usually, I try to mix existential questions with pretty fast action. Uh, that perhaps sounds a bit strange, but that is, uh, in a way, my hallmark. I like to mix up philosophical questions about life and uh, death and love, etc., uh, and uh, gun-toting people running around screaming. <laughs> but this time I skipped the guns and screaming and uh, just tried to go for uh, this relationship between this man and this uh, woman. Honestly, I don't remember anymore uh, where I got the, uh, uh, the the first idea to the story. But I wanted to to see if I could cram down as much emotion and as much uh, powerful dialogue as possible in a as short space as possible. <laughs> if you understand what I mean. Uh, so, so I needed two people who uh, were really angry at each other, but who were still drawn to each other. So uh, I thought about this uh, couple, two people who really loved each other, who who had something going, something beautiful. But re- relationships are never easy, and uh, something came be- be- between them, and uh, suddenly she got this offer to uh, go on the first interplanetary no, the first interstellar expedition to uh, see other suns and other planets. And, well, who could say no to such an offer? But it's not very easy to uh, meet the people again, which you have left behind. And uh, they are not really in a very good place when it starts. But, but at the same time, I, I didn't want to write a story with no hope. There are quite a lot of those stories otherwise, especially in Sweden. <laughs> uh, so I, I still wanted to that, that, that to be some kind of light and some kind of promise at the end of a uh, new beginning. And I guess that's the challenge of a short story is to pack a lot into a, into a short space. And after quite a few years apart, they this couple certainly had a lot to talk about. Yeah, they did. He was quite angry, which was quite fun to write, actually. Anger is a powerful emotion, and especially since uh, anger, uh, in my opinion, cannot exist really without some kind of love or that you care somewhere, because if you do not love anymore, uh, it doesn't really matter. So uh, his anger and uh, his... Well, it, it's, it's quite understandable, <laughs> in in my opinion, and and it's and, and, and it's also been quite interesting to see the reception this story has uh, uh, gone. Well, uh, the, the, there are some people who take his side, and there are some people who take her side. And it's very fun and interesting to see <laughs> why and how. Oh, that is interesting. It is, and he is. I was going to note that he wears his wedding ring, which, after so many years, is a telling, you know, obviously a sign of his continued commitment. Anna, why don't we talk a little bit about your short story? Uh, it's called Messiah, and actually, I don't think we said what your um, story was called, uh, uh, Oscar. One last ki- kiss goodbye. Exactly. And Anna's story is Messiah, and uh, it's set in a very kind of grim. 
dystopic vision of the future, which from an American perspective, I think uh, we've tended, at least historically, to look at Scandinavia as kind of the ideal uh, balanced uh, society where <laughs> everyone's taken care of and everyone gets yes. along. Yeah. And so it's sort of dissonant, even though I know that's never probably been 100% true and maybe maybe less so today, just as, as, as things are changing in the world. But what talk a little bit about your story, where the idea came from and what you were communicating. Yeah, I think it's funny because I read a lot of Oscar's stories and he's, as he said, he's most often there's fighting and, and there's philosophy intermixed. And in this story that he wrote, he's actually done the, the two people sitting in the woods talking or not talking. So, so he's, you're going down my alley, Oscar, and you better stop because it's not a fun alley. Now you've been there, now you can turn away. And, and well, it's, since, it's, still, it's still science fiction yeah. anyway. So. Yeah, yeah, you put out the interstellar thing, but you really deep down your Swedish soul is speaking to you and, and writing these. these uh, I, I see this at the Isid sketch where he's saying that British films are like this, rearranging matches. It's a, a lovely bit. And, and it's like we don't talk to each other. And, and you're, you, have to, you have to watch yourself, Oscar, because you're going down the wrong row there. And you're because doing I've the done power that. of the dark yeah. side. <laughs> yeah. yeah, because I, I wrote my first novel. Uh, or, uh, it, I wrote that for like 15 years, working on it and working on it and working on it. And it was all realistic and dark and, and the people just sitting, doing nothing, eating hard bread. And, and because I've done that, uh, I'm not doing it again. And not even for a selection of stories that maybe if you, you think about it, you can say, what do we want to show what what are, are the Swedish perspective on the world that we sh- when you write in English you want to show something you want to write in a tradition or something and I think my short stories are I'm actually working on a longer uh, trilogy now with a novel that's out this spring and then another coming out this autumn and another next year and it's eating my time and it's e- eating my energy and it's it's really a lovely thing to be doing but it's it drains me a bit so when I do the short stories it's like my little breathing holes of just making up a, a world uh, just for this story not it is the story is perhaps eight ten pages and the, the world doesn't have to hold up for more than eight ten pages I don't have to have a, a society behind it I don't have to know how people vote or if there's been a war or even if there's the world is on this planet or another planet or or in another uh, time or space or something. So, so I think that for me, uh, my short stories tend to be a bit to display some some world building. I think that is a fun thing to be doing. I think because I'm quite new at at having to build worlds, I I tend to to like it a lot. Uh, I do that with my stories and I. I like that I, in short stories, don't have to build a big world. I can just keep it small and, and exact. And for me, the Messiah story actually started like a grain and a thought a couple of years back where I thought about a person coming home from partying and, and a crazy person in the next uh, apartment and, and they having a conversation. This was in my people standing in rooms talking to each other face, so this was all realistic. This was a person coming home from a perfectly normal Swedish party and with a perfectly normal Swedish lunatic in the department next to her. <laughs> so so it, was, it wasn't it was a fantastic story. But then uh, when I got this 
call from Peter that maybe I wanted to be in this uh, this collection. I this story. First of all, it was called Messias in Swedish, and that was just an ugly word. Word. It was not. It's not a good word. Messiah is a better word. So, so I was thinking about well, maybe this Messiah story. If I call it Messiah, then I can I can do something with it. It's like what did the other word mean though? Did it mean it's, something? It's, it's still Messias is still Messiah in English. It's like just the Swedish version of it. It's like we're we're not a particularly religious people, and and the word. Messias sounded a bit too big and it sounded not natural. I couldn't build it into the the story in, in a good way in Swedish. So then when I started doing it in English, it just, sometimes it's, it is like that. You don't know. The language the language change makes, makes you, something kind of fits when you, you shift, shift your language. And I think that was something I did. I tried out, because I knew that I was writing my story in English originally, and I knew that this will be a struggle for me because, well, I'm mostly character-driven. I'm mostly language-driven. I'm always struggling with the story. The storytelling part of me is is weakest. I always have to struggle with that. But the language and the character is stronger. So then doing it in, in like with one hand tied behind my back, I knew that I had to struggle. And then I thought maybe I, I'll try something new. I'll try a, a language that feels a bit new and fresh and, and with a new take on it. Maybe I, I use a bit more adjectives than I, I usually allow myself because as a Swedish writer, you're kind of, I don't know, you, you kind of whip yourself into submission sometimes. You you scale away and you take take things off and, and you do things a bit minimalistic. It's not just the furniture. It's like the language as well. And And I write in that tradition with always taking away, taking away, taking away. So then I thought, maybe when I, if I shift language, I can do something else. Maybe I can just, I can call it a rickety bridge. I don't have to find another way to just say it in and lose the adjective. So I was playing around with the language, I think. And then the story with the this person saving the world, I was struggling and struggling to make it hold as a story because I was, I had this person walking through this this world where things were starting in my imagination things were starting to burn and i was feeling this words coming like demi kings of of human waste that was a good thing she's walking here and she's just on her way to something and what will happen i'm oscar and me are, are quite the opposite i'm just writing and hoping that somehow my my fantastic story will just come to a fantastic end and everything will work out logically and they never do and i just cry and and go over it from the beginning and oscar is more structured and and i don't think he's crying as much so i think it's i had that that problem and and i am a so-called architect and you are more like a explorer right (laughs) yeah explorer that's yeah it's a that's a fun way to put it it's not so fun when you're there and you're lost and it's like heart of darkness while i i I almost always know the end of my story before i even start to write it i was going to say you're front-loading the effort though oscar you're you must be it must take you a while to to craft the architecture yeah sure absolutely absolutely so you just do all the work up front, and then yep. you have to. Then it's easier to write. Yeah, long walks with the kids in the forest, quite a lot of time to think about story structure. 
So uh, often I, I, I do my, at, at least my short novels, I have them almost uh, structured uh, 100% before I sit down and, and write them. Then, of course, sometimes you uh, find new interesting angles uh, and then you let it grow or- organically. But still, I always have uh, the end goal, uh, the, the payoff at the end in mind. So I always know in which di- direction I'm writing. Well, so I wonder, is there something distinctly Swedish about this collection and about, oh, yes. about your your writing? <laughs> well, so I wonder what that is, because on the surface, you could look at both your stories and say, you know, it, it has kind of universal qualities to them about the conundrum of the theory of relativity and, and traveling in space and how that changes the speed with which you age. And then Anna's story, a kind of grim future where that maybe there is some there's some hope of salvation through this this mechanism. I don't want to ruin the story, but there is, you know, something revealed at the end where it seems like this person has an opportunity to like go back and try again to to make the world to spare the world this disastrous future. It it has been quite interesting to see the re- reviews of the anthology uh because almost everyone uh all, all almost all of them uh point out how dark it is. Uh, and to be totally honest, when I read through it uh, the first time, I didn't consider it overly, overly dark. <laughs> so it must be a Swedish thing. And uh, that, is, that is also quite interesting, because as you said before, it is true that Sweden is, what did, what, what did you say, a stable... Uh, well, it's always been, I mean, historically, I think Americans have looked to at least liberal, more liberal minded Americans have looked yeah, toward, yeah. to it towards as a, an example of a society that has achieved balance, you know, has figured out how to live properly. Um, well, yeah, and, and honestly, uh, in my opinion, that is true. Uh, it is very good to be a, a Swede. <laughs> we have uh, full he- health care, uh, we have. Uh, uh, free ed- education uh, all the way up to university level yeah. and and anyone who has a talent can pretty much become anything uh, so there are no boundaries uh, to make a so called class journey of course we do have our, our problems of course every society do uh, but still uh, sweden is a, well I, I i am a swede of course so i might be a bit uh, uh, what would you say? A bit uh, biased. So biased, exactly. Uh, in in this, but Sweden, in my opinion, is a great country to live in. Uh, so the, the so the question is really why do we do we write so dark stories when we actually live in such a bright country? Uh, I do have a theory on that, but I know Anna, you also have a theory, right? Yeah, but we discussed this, and I, I don't know. I don't. My theory kind of crumbles. I, I, I think that, actually, I think I look at my story and and most of my other stories, and I think them actually less dark uh, than most uh, contemporary Swedish realistic writers, because we have this this tendency to write about divorce and and, and problems. And I tell my friend that writes uh, youth novels with a lot of love that you need some salt in the chocolate, baby. And she's like, oh, she's not that fond of, of the salt. She she just wants to write the, the lovey-dovey stuff. But but I, I keep telling her that you need some, some problems. And, of course, 
uh, I guess I get that from the, uh, the Swedish side of always looking at at the world a bit hopeless. But um, the scientific stuff and the sci- science fiction uh, novels, they always have a bit of hope. In in my story, the world is fucked up, but but there's hope for change. But in a re- realistic story, maybe there's not as much many problems, but there's there's no need to have hope in the end of that story. So I don't think it's that dark. Maybe there, I think maybe there's the storytelling that we we don't shy away from uh, the darker sides. I think we proud ourselves with being a bit braver with maybe not with violence, but with other things. We I think we see the Anglo-Saxon. Maybe I'm speaking just for myself now, but I see the Anglo-Saxon literature, and I think, well, here's a tradition that maybe sometimes think a, a bit more about what goes, what you can sell, and and how you should maybe not be so dark, and not so much about how reality is, or or, or how to st- tell a story that you can really feel in your heart. So I think maybe the the storytelling is a bit is a bit blunt and a bit um, well straightforward with the dark sides and how, why that is i don't know it, it, it is certainly true when it comes to swedish crime uh, uh it's, it, it's also quite interesting to, to notice the success during the last 10 to 15 years of scandinavian crime novels uh, yeah for sure like, like for example the uh, girl with the dragon t- tattoo uh, and such novels uh uh, I have heard that you can even walk into uh, bookstores uh, pretty much all, all around the world and find uh, a shelf w- with a sign that actually says Scandinavian uh, crime novels. <laughs> yeah, I've seen that. I've seen that. And it, it is interesting because, as you say, you know, you, 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 you have these wonderful qualities in your culture, and yet what you are also famous for are these kind of bleak crime kinds of stories. I wonder what explains that. Well, let's take my theory then. <laughs> I, th- I think it has a lot, lot to do with our history, actually. Because Sweden today is a very ri- rich country. Uh, it's good to live here. But if you go back in, in time, just two, three, four generations, uh, you know, during the 19th century, uh, half of the Swedish population emigrated to, the, to, uh, to America in the hope of a better life, because people were starving here. It was quite a bit of hell to live here, actually. Uh, it was so hard uh, that, that there are... It is a saying that in the county where I grew up, it's called Småland, which means uh, li- little countries. <laughs> uh, it, it, it is uh, a county known for uh, the hard people and uh, the hard earth that they had to uh, toil in to get their food. And uh, it is said, I don't know if it's true, but it is said that, that they had 100 words for... Um, honestly, I don't think it, that there is a straight English translation even for this word. It, in Swedish, it's orka. Uh, in English, it would be uh, having the energy to be able to. And if you do not orka, then you, you can't take it anymore. And uh, these people, it, it is said that they had 100 words, <laughs> different kinds of uh, nuances, uh, talking about this, how they just couldn't take it anymore, or how they just had to find energy to go on. Uh, and this kind of living, of course, live, 
leaves a mental mark, uh, a subconscious mental mark, if you will, in the entire culture. So even today, uh, three, four generations later, when uh, we have industries and computers and we are uh, a high-tech country, etc., there is still something of this uh, melancholy, this uh, sorrow, this sadness, which lies in the back of our well of, of our stories our songs e- even in our nursery nursery rhymes we have a lot of bleak material <laughs> if you say so to to get stuff from when we write and, and when it comes to swedish crimes uh since we are uh, and, and i always uh, smile a bit when i say this when i speak to americans since, since we are a socialist country Uh, (laughs) you you smile because it's not exactly true or just because it's provocative to say that i smile because it's uh, not exactly true but it is true at at the same time well you know when when i when i watched the first election uh when uh, barack obama got got elected the uh I, i actually followed that quite a bit over the internet and there was an interview with his vice president, and uh, the in- interviewer uh, asked, is it true that Barack Obama wants to transform America into a socialist country like Sweden? Ah, uh, right. It was quite fun to uh, hear Sweden taking up as a horrible example of uh, socialism. But but let's get, get back to the uh, crime novels. I, I, I think that, that there is also... Uh, in this Swedish version of uh, socialism, which is uh, a mix between capitalism and and, 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 and socialism, that there is a uh, a will and a uh, passion to expose wrongdoings in society, to uh, find the dark corners and shine a light in there, to expose it so that we can do something about it. And uh, so I believe that there are lo- lots of Swedish crime writers who have actually taken it upon themselves to find these areas and shine some light into the darkness. We comment on society. I think that our, our resistance, our, our history of resistance is always a, almost as, as strong and as old as our history of, of poverty. Uh, yeah. so, so I think that is something that we, we pride ourselves of. And then when we show society, of course we show a, a darker and, and more bleak kind of society because we shine. We don't do the uh, the crimes or, or any kind of stories in, in parts of society that are, that are functioning. I think that that is something I, I put into my writing and I think it's most science fiction writers all across the globe, but most come all, all, always in Sweden where we have this tradition of... of resistance and of of shining the light on, on wrongdoings. I think we, we use science fiction as a way to, to say something about society and a society that we see could be something more, that we see yeah. could excel and, and leave. Because for Sweden for Swedes I think we're we live in a great society where every where people most most of us are fairly safe and we don't we have a lot of security. But we also have a lot of Outlook, because we are a small country, uh, we don't. You can't live your own whole life in Sweden and just speak to Swedes, because that would be incredibly boring. Uh, <laughs> it's not like yeah. we, well, our country is not a continent like the U.S. So, so we have a lot of 
uh, we see a lot about the world, and the world is not a safe place. The world is not a, a place that is living up to the potential of, of mankind. And I think that is something that leaks into us as well, because we have a lot of uh, traditions about that, looking at the world and seeing that it could be better. But you've also had, um, you, I mean, you have your own issues, as I understand, like immigration, although you're still one of the more open nations, I think, in Europe, yeah. but things yeah. have been changing all around Europe. So I wonder how some current issues might be affecting the consciousness of writers and the, and the stories uh, that you tell. And, and even when you say it's safe, you know, I, I, I do remember uh, when uh, your prime minister, Olaf Palm, is that his name? Yeah. yeah. And that was a major news event that I was aware of because I was so shocked that, that the prime minister could stroll home with his wife from a movie theater with, I think, if he didn't have bodyguards. And I'm sure Not things have changed since then. But uh, Of course, we have our problems. Sweden is by no, by, by, is, is in no way an utopia. And perhaps that is also why we still put so much darkness into our stories, because as Anna said, uh, there are always things. I think that, that I believe that the struggle for society and the struggle for civilization is a struggle that every generation has to do for itself. Uh, you cannot live on uh, the old blessings of gen generations who has gone before without you also adding uh, your part to the, uh, what should I say, to the flow of uh, culture, to, to the flow of society into the future. Uh, if a generation slacks off and believes that they can just take it easy and live of the blessings of uh, which uh, older generations so hard has fought and, and so and so forth for, uh, they will wake up, I believe, to a horrible surprise. Uh, isn't it an uh, English expression to say that the price of freedom is eternal vigilance? Uh, and I believe it's true. Well, so let's talk a little bit about um, self-publishing, because I know you've both experimented with that, and that's that's kind of exploded here in the United States, and I imagine all over the world, uh, at least where um, the technology is available. And so I wondered if you could share a little bit about what the state of traditional publishing is in Sweden right now, and what your experience with self-publishing uh, has been like. Um, Anna, do you want to start? Yeah, I think that, that uh, it, we've seen a, a couple of maybe five, six years now uh, things are starting to happening. It's 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 because it's a small language. We we can't just if you're an Anglo-Saxon in in any way, you can just publish your story uh, on an Amazon and then you're you're you have it for a bigger audience. But we have to sort of create our own uh, market, and and I think that's. Uh, that's happening now that we have a lot of the big publishers i think they are waking up to the the notion that that people are taking their stories elsewhere because we uh, traditionally we don't have we have a, a few big publishers and they do their own they have their own well they can only take on so many authors and they have their own traditions and in those traditions I don't think that science fiction and fantasy actually exist more than like a few stories each year for yeah, each author. a few. A yeah, few. few. Yeah, very few if you, you look at the the whole picture. They they tend to 
if you have a great story like The Hunger Games and you know it's going to be a, a big movie, then why don't take it and, and translate it and, and go with that story instead of, of looking for the great science fiction story of a, from a Swedish writer? And, and, and also, that, if they do publish a science fiction story, they don't call it science fiction. They call no, it something they, else yeah. in the hope of reaching a larger market. Yeah, so I think in, in that, uh, well, on the, in that context... Uh, it's growing the the self publishing. It's something that's easy to to do, and it's uh, we have a lot of people that have experience. And I think that one upside of being a small community, like nine and a half, maybe ten million people speak Swedish and and, and live in in Sweden, and then uh, the upside is that there's a community, a rather tight knit community of people uh, wanting to share experiences that want to help each other. I have a lot of. Uh, writer friends and and people that I meet over the internet. I I explode this a bit, but I live in the, this godforsaken place where where it, there, it's a long drive to anywhere where the the big <laughs> publishers go and and where people go to to parties to to show themselves off to to publishers. It's not my reality. I'm a like a mother and and I don't go there. So so for me, it's like the internet opened up. Uh, this sounds, sounds funny because the internet is not a new thing, but but this people coming together over the internet and and sharing their stories and and you can learn from my first book where what I published and make made every I think I made every error you could. It's like just like the best learning you could ever do, and and then then something, and then f- for my next novel, it's like I can ask all these people, I can. Uh, get people interested in helping me to to spread the word. Uh, there's a lot of community, I think, in in the this small world of Swedish self-publishing, and I think that is yeah. really the upside of us. Yeah. The so- uh, small press uh, has really been excellent at networking during the last couple of years. Uh, we're getting to know each other, and uh, we are building uh, something together which is uh, stronger, meaner and leaner than anything we could have done uh, apart uh, or as single entities. And uh, I do believe that the, uh, especially when it comes to genre literature, there's never, ever in history (laughs) been so much interesting uh, stuff on the Swedish markets. Uh, I I'm not able anymore to read everything. <laughs> I, I am not even able to uh, catch up on everything which uh, comes out. So uh, it's uh, quite an uh, exciting future, I believe, mm-hmm. that we are going towards. Yeah, that that sound that will sound really silly for the American Oscar, but you yeah. as a person have actually been able yeah. to keep yeah. up with the the yeah. things coming out from or all or all and that, that is <laughs> how it's been. It's it's a small yeah. market, it's a small genre, but now it's like blooming, and I think yeah. it's really fun. And the the collections and the anthologies actually bring a lot of attention to to writers because you can write a short story and and you can get it in in one of like Peter's. Uh, collections and you get uh, bloggers and and people noticing and then when you come out with your own novel then you have an upside for for yeah I, I wrote I I read your novel uh, I, I read your short story and then maybe the novel is good as well because 
reaching out and, and getting people to notice is always the, the hard step. Printing, writing is hard, but printing is easy. And then it's get, it gets hard again when you're supposed to get readers. So I think that's also changing. When, when it comes to the big publishing houses, uh, there are uh, like two or three which are really big and uh, hold a lot of the market here in the iron grip. <laughs> uh, I would say that uh, most of them uh, don't really know what's hitting them, really. They don't understand what's going on, except one of them, actually. Uh, which just recently uh, released a beta of their own self-publishing platform. <laughs> they want a piece of the action. Uh, they have studied their Darwin, and they know that, that they have to adapt in order to survive. Uh, I believe that in the future, uh, that publishing house and the other one who actually adapts to the new markets, especially now before Amazon gets here, those who uh, strengthen their network and strengthen their uh, name on the markets will have a much uh, better uh, chance to actually survive uh, when Amazon gets here. But a lot of the middle-sized publishers in in between, I believe that that we will see them wipe from the map, honestly, because uh, they are not able to transform themselves uh, fast enough into this uh, new reality which the print-on-demand and ebook market has uh, created. I think the writers in general have this idea that they want, to, they want their book to look and, and feel the way they want it to be. And the thing with self-publishing is that you are the boss. I just ask my editor, if, uh, can I write this scene this way? Is it too, is it too strong? And the, the editor says, well, it's okay because it's me. So, so it's, <laughs> it's not a problem. But yeah. I think with the smaller smaller uh, publishers, you you won't as a writer writer see that this is something they can't bring anything to the table. They can't do this uh, billboard things. They can't put you on any shows. You, they can't make you reach out to any more readers. And they will have their ideas about how to to do the book. I don't believe that uh, the. Uh big houses will ever go away entirely though because there is a lot of writers that do not feel comfortable with doing the covers and the uh, do, doing the well do, doing everything themselves they like to just send in their manuscript and have something someone else do it for them uh, Who else, Oscar? Do we <laughs> they are crazy people <laughs> <laughs> well you and me Anna we are perhaps more of the controlling type uh, yeah. I, I always hear uh, people uh, telling me these stories about uh, how they have to handle their editor, how they ha- have to handle their uh, pub- publishing house. And I always think, oh, thank God, I can hire whichever editor I want, and I can hire my own illustrator, and I hire my own graphical layout guy, and they do what I say. <laughs> it's <laughs> uh, it's hell so, while it's going on because you have to manage everything. But then when it comes out, it's yours. It's yeah, yours, and, yeah. and all the blame and all the the well, yeah. all the yeah. good things that people say, it's just yours. It's not. And if you reach some kind of reader, it's not because the big publishing house said this is what you're going to read. Because that's the scene also. Because it's so s- small and there's so few actors. If some of them say this is the new young adult book and it's about witches, and this is what you're going to like, then I think 
it's somehow that happens. People like that book because the it's the big publishers, and and then they, they decide what people will like. But if you come from the underground, there's something alluring about that. That if you reach a reader when you come from nothing, then you know that it's it's not because some kind of a marketing scheme it's because your writing is good enough so i think it's it's more rewarding for me as a writer to know that i'm not a product of any big publishing house i'm my my own and my writing is strong enough if i reach a reader and she comes back to me and says i like your book i really liked it it made me feel this and this then i know it's for real and and how do your readers know how to find you i mean where do they find you uh, through twitter facebook yeah <laughs> <laughs> And That's and better. also, I, I believe, uh, I personally believe in uh, being out there as much as possible, uh, being out uh, signing uh, in, in uh, food stores or wherever. Really, uh, I have sold so many books in uh, in ordinary food stores. In food stores, yeah. I mean, you, you just show up, or you let them know you're coming. No, 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 no. Of, of course, I speak with the owner first, and uh, they put my. Uh, book in their system and then we arrange a date and we have some uh, local uh, advertisement in the paper Uh, and uh, often I manage to get an interview also in in the paper so people know that that it's coming and then they arrange a table and I get there and I usually stand somewhere between the bananas and the the, uh, loaves of bread and uh, smile and I I, I have my roll up with uh, my books and a table in front of me with uh, big stacks of books and uh, I just sell them like butter and it's yeah. a wonderful feeling. Wow, I, I don't I can't imagine that happening here. That sounds and is that is that in Stockholm or is that more likely to happen uh, in a in a smaller community? Actually, I think it's likely to happen wherever uh, if if you just contact your local store and ask them. Uh, uh, I have been doing it for a couple of years now, and I know some other author friends who is doing it as well. Because there is something with people's mentality when when they walk into a bookstore. Uh, there are tens of thousands of uh, different uh, alternatives. When you walk into the food store, uh, looking for uh, uh, gro- groceries, really, <laughs> and suddenly there's uh, a guy standing there with uh, a really nice-looking book. Uh, and talking to you, uh, and you, you can get it signed and buy buy one for, for for your kid, perhaps. There's something in in your mind when you walk into a grocery store that you have already kind of like opened your wallet. So it's uh, so easy to just uh, get the, this book for your kid, uh, put it in your uh, shopping basket, and move on, and then and then you pay for it uh, with the other uh, groceries in the uh, cash registry. Uh, along with all the other stuff. It's another upside with not living in New York. It's not, it's like, and even in Stockholm, everybody has a local grocery. It's it's not, it's not like, it's not that big. So I think that people everywhere, I I see it all the time. I haven't gone gone that far, actually. My local store is just a couple of, of, well, it's not far from here, but I, uh, it's a big step for me. I'm more of a, I like the libraries. I've sold a lot of books to libraries, and I like seeing that they get, uh, people pick them up and read them there. So so I think that maybe I, I do grocery stores my, for my next book. <laughs> I'm a bit shy that way. But I think it's a good way. I think Oscar's right. When you're buying stuff, then you can buy a book. 
if you go into a, a bookstore, maybe you just stay to to look and it feels awkward with this guy standing there and want, wanting you to sign the book or anything. But but in the grocery store, you're prepared to pay. So I think it's it's a good way. Yeah, it's brilliant. And I, and I also usually sell at uh, markets. Uh, well, we have these uh, outside, what would you say? Like a flea market? Yeah, exactly. Like, like, like flea markets in downtown with tables everywhere. Uh, people selling everything from uh, their own uh, locally made uh, honey to uh, new wallets to, uh, well, kind of like anything. And suddenly I stand there with my table and my books. Uh, and I also used to travel to different uh, conferences. There is a pretty active uh, Swedish uh, fandom uh, and they have uh, Suicon. We had uh, Eurocon here a couple of, uh, of ye- years ago. 2012, was it? No, it was 2011. I don't remember anymore. Well, well, it sounds great. And um, I appreciate your, your taking the time to talk with me. And uh, everyone listening has heard it here first, that there is a <laughs> new wave of of Swedish science fiction writers out there and uh, listeners can dive in and get their first taste by looking at the collection or reading the collection, waiting for the machines to fall asleep. Yeah, so thanks so much for uh, chatting with me. Yeah, well, thank you very much. It's been an honor. Uh, I've been talking with Anna Jakobsen Lund and Oskar Schellner, two contributors to the collection Waiting for the Machines to Fall Asleep. The book was edited by Peter Oberg, who uh, I asked if he wanted to be on an interview, but he said he he didn't feel so comfortable uh, speaking. So if I had asked if I had, if it had been in writing, he would have been fine with that. So uh, maybe 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 another day. I encourage listeners to check out uh, other interviews uh, with authors on the New Books in Science Fiction and Fantasy website www.newbooksinsciencefiction.com and to subscribe on iTunes or other podcasting sites. We have a Facebook page. We tweet at New Books Sci-Fi. I tweet personally at Rob Wolf Books. And I've taken my own stab at self-publishing uh, two YA science fiction uh, books. And you can look me up at robwolf.net to find out more about that. Our logo is by Michael Thibodeau. Theme music by Michael Aaron. The editor of the New Books Network is Marshall Poe. And in a couple weeks, I'll be talking to James Cambius about his book, Corsair. And a couple weeks after that, I'll be talking to Melinda Snodgrass about Edge of Dawn, which is to be published in August. Bye for now. Thanks for listening.